Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode... What the hell episode are we on? Hold on. Episode 132. 132. Season 1, Episode 132. The snow is coming down in southeastern Wisconsin. Maybe that's why my brain is a little scrambled here. We're getting set for Packer Wildcard Weekend. When this team was 2-5 and five or 3-6, and six, I don't think, I really truly thought we'd be doing a Wildcard Weekend preview that involved the Packers. They turned their whole season around. Jordan Love, one of the best quarterbacks in the league in the last eight or nine weeks. And they are in as the seven seed. The hated Cowboys are the two seed. A team and a franchise that ruined most of my youth in the mid-90s. See if the Packers can exact some revenge for 10-year-old Jonathan on Sunday in Dallas. They really have been the last 10 or 20 years. I'm very happy to know that there is a young Cowboy fan in the last 15 years that is going through the exact same thing in reverse that I went through in the 90s when every Packers season went to die at Texas Stadium. Recent playoff history, the Packers have kind of owned the Cowboys whenever they've met up. We're going to break it all down. Injuries, the whole nine yards. Getting set for Sunday afternoon. We will talk about Wild Card Weekend. How about the Milwaukee Bucks? Who saw that coming? On national TV last night with the NBA best Celtics in town. Celtics on the second game of a back-to-back, yes, but they played everybody in the first half, and the Bucks absolutely thumped them a victory that was a statement to the rest of the league that when the Bucks are right, that is what they are capable of. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some college hoops. We'll make some picks and some Brewer notes as well. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's incomplete, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker, the drive, gets inside, leads in. coming down as expected. This one is not going to be the letdown that we had on Tuesday. Tuesday, we were in the winter storm warning early and right up against the lakeshore in Sheboygan, it was mostly rain or a mix. And that led to a lot of internet snow day tough guying from a lot of different Facebook accounts. We're connected to, or I'm an administrator for all of the stations in our building. One of them is the AM right behind me, WHBL. And of course, they're the ones that post the weather updates and the cancellations and the closings and all that kind of stuff. And there was a lot of commentary on there on Tuesday as the day wore on. And basically, the part of the county right by the lakeshore maybe got half an inch of an expected six to eight inches. Don't you hate that when you expect six or eight inches and you get half an inch? Golf swing. Anyway. We didn't get the storm that we thought we were going to get for part of the county. The other part of the county got seven inches. I think Plymouth in Wisconsin got seven, seven and a half inches. They led most of the total graphs on the nightly news afterwards. So they got it half right, but Sheboygan Area School District canceled the day before, anticipating this big storm, and then, boy, did they hear it. I don't understand. What's the big deal? (laughs) If they have a snow day, 
I do not get the anger over a snow day that they call early and then maybe it's not as much snow as we thought. People were so revved up about that. What is the issue there? I promise it's going to be okay. They're going to be okay. If kids get a snow day and then the snow day ends up being not as much snow as we thought or they could have been in school, I promise you it's going to be all right. I saw people my age on Facebook claiming that we never had snow day. Oh, we never had a snow day. I walked uphill in 12 inches. I biked to school in 15 inches of snow and ice, and we did it the hard way. We were a a tougher generation. I said, no, we did not do that. We had plenty of snow days. And I know my mom was the principal at St. Dominic's school, the elementary school I went to, and she was in charge of calling it for the parochial schools. The public schools would make their decision. And then my mom was in charge of the parochial schools. We had a lot of snow days because I remember when our phone would ring in our house. Remember that? The house phone ringing? When our phone would ring early the day or the morning after a snowstorm or an anticipated snowstorm or predicted snowstorm, I knew we had off. It was the greatest sound in the world. It woke me up from a deep sleep, but I knew what that meant. If they were calling our house at 4 o'clock in the morning or 4.30 in the morning, I knew what that call was. That call was leading to a cancellation of school because the parochial schools essentially just kind of followed what the public schools did. We had plenty of those. We had cold days. We had snow days. We had all that kind of stuff when I was a kid. I couldn't fathom the amount of friends that I have that are my age that I went to school with, that I actually went to school with. We never had a snow day. This is ridiculous. Holy cow. A lot of wasted anger on that on Tuesday. Well, today we're actually getting the snow. And they canceled everything early this morning. They waited. A lot of school districts waited because of the pushback on what happened on Tuesday. But they called it real early this morning, and it is coming down, and the road conditions are pretty rough out there. As a radio DJ, by the way, I am so deeply saddened that I don't get to be that guy anymore that tells kids when there is a snow day. One of the reasons I got into this whole profession was that I could be that guy. Early on in my time at B93 in 2008 or 9, it was still kind of where people would tune into the radio to hear if church was canceled, if it was a Sunday, or to hear if school was canceled or delayed. I got a couple of years of that. But we are full on now in the parents get a text or an email from the school district. They find out kind of firsthand, and then it actually becomes secondhand to us. We used to be the ones that they would call and say, okay, now get this information out there to everybody. And then I got to be the guy where kids were listening to the radio or watching TV with bated breath. Are they going to say our school? Is he going to say our school? And then you'd say the school. Ah! I got to be the person bringing that joy into their lives. But not anymore. Not anymore. Sad. We used to be a country, a proper country. All right, before we get into Packers and Cowboys, I would like to play you a clip. And I want to play you a clip of one of the other times in Packer history back in 1993 where they were the last seed in and they had to go on the road in Wild Card Weekend, on Wild Card Weekend, and they took on the higher seed at that time. It was the Detroit Lions. It takes us to the Silver Dome. Remember the Silver Dome? This, I'm pretty sure, was the first Brett Favre-Sterling Sharp playoff game. The first time they got in. 92, they didn't get in. This is 93, their first time in the playoffs. Sound familiar? A young team making their first trip in the playoffs. And I will never forget watching this game at my grandma's house on Lincoln Avenue in Sheboygan on one of those set-top TVs. Remember those things? She, it must have been a Saturday game. They must have had one of the Saturday games, and I think she was babysitting. And I was watching the game there, and I was just kind of getting into Packer football and starting to really live and die with things. And I'll never forget that play that we're going to play here in a second where Favre finds Sterling Sharp wide open in the back of the end zone for the go-ahead touchdown. It's the first time in my football viewing life where I exclaimed loudly. I yelled. I Ric Flair woo. I Ric Flair wooed. 
And it just came out of, it was organic. It just came from my gut of that instant reaction of something going my team's way. That's the first time I can remember, oh my God, yes. And what I love about this clip is, somebody put this on Twitter. It is a crystal clear clip of Jim Irwin and Max McGee, the old Packer Radio Network partners before McCarron and Wayne Larravee. And McCarron, I think, was in the booth with them for a year or two before Wayne joined in. I think McCarron joined McGee and Irwin right at the end of their time, the last year or two. And it's just such a wholesome clip. It's a wave of nostalgia. Here is the call on the Packer Radio Network back in 1994. They're going to do, but you, if you want the touchdown right now. Crossing pattern, a clock at a minute 12. Two timeouts left. you got to get it down somewhere around, I would think, back to the 30-yard line. Just don't get unsettled here. Here's Favre back to throw. Favre looking. Now Favre running. Come on, run it. He's going to throw it to the end zone. He's open. Sharp. Wide open. Touchdown. Sterling Sharp. Open. He got away and scored the touchdown with 55 <laughs> seconds left in the ball game. And what a pass by Brett Favre. They're mobbing him on the sidelines. He threw that high and wide. Well, can you tell where Larry McCarron learned his <laughs> stomping all over the play-by-play guys moment? Because Max does that to Jim there. And I love Jim Irwin, how genuine that was when Favre is rolling out before he throws across his body. And he says, run, run, run with it. And he comes and brings that back at the end of the clip. That just was such a beautiful piece of audio. I thought I had to share that with you. That moment where the Packers moved on. And guess where their season ended after that, everybody? The second round in Dallas. That was our life. That, those were, that was my young football viewing life for a long time where the Packers would win that wild card game, they'd go to Dallas and die. Packers would win a wild card game, they'd go to Dallas and die. Packers win the divisional round game in San Francisco, go to Dallas and die. Three years in a row at Texas Stadium with that stupid hole at the top of it. I could never understand why they did that. I don't think it was a retractable roof. I just knew anytime they opened to broadcast Packer Cowboys and they gave you the blimp view and you saw that stupid hole right over the field at the old Texas Stadium, you just knew nothing good was going to happen. And nothing good really ever did happen there. Packers eventually won the Super Bowl. Then Dallas had to come to Lambeau the subsequent year and they blew their doors off on a cold day at Lambeau. And as we set off the top, the history between these two teams has totally changed. Packers went or in Lambeau Field, the Dez catch-not-catch. That was actually two days ago in Packer history. They got the win there. They got the win where Favre, oh, Favre, whoa. (laughs) Do I smell toast? Where Rodgers drew up that play to Jared Cook to get them in field goal range, and Crosby hits that impossible field goal to get them the win. The more recent Packer-Cowboy history is firmly on the Packers' side, where Cowboy fans that are 15 years younger than me, they know nothing but misery taking on the Packers, whereas I have a different view of what happened when I was a kid every time the Packers and Cowboys played. We get set for it this weekend, though. Packers are the seven seed. Cowboys are the two seed. Can the Packers win like we talked about during the Victory Monday podcast? Absolutely they can. They, I would put them at a 30%, 35% chance to win. What's going to be fascinating to watch, and I don't remember how the beginning of that Packer-Lion game started at the Silver Dome. You assume, I think you have to assume going into this game, that there is going to be a learning curve. The, every player at any major sport will tell you, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, whatever it is, when you get to the playoffs, the lights are brighter, the pace is faster, everything is more critical, there's nowhere where you can kind of take a breath. It's that intense. This young team, the youngest team in the league, did you know that? fun fact that the youngest team in the league youngest team to make the playoffs since 1974 
the youngest team in the league is likely to have a slow start, I would guess. I'm not saying that that's how it's going to be, but I think as a Packer fan, you have to steal yourself for the idea that the first quarter could be a little up and down. If the Cowboys take that first kick or get the opening offensive possession, go right down the field and score a touchdown, or they're up 14 nothing. You know what other game I think of? And this was just a couple days ago in Packer history, too. When the Aaron Rodgers Packer team went to Arizona in 2009 for their first playoff run as a team. And they fell down early. They were down 10 nothing, or maybe even 14 nothing At one point, I'm pretty sure they were down 31-10 to before they stormed back, got the game tied at 45. What a game that was. And then it went to overtime, and Aaron Rodgers got his face ripped off. They didn't call a face mask. He fumbled it, and the Cardinals scored the touchdown on the fumble recovery, 51-45. Not that I'm still bitter. Remember, though, that was a slow start for that team, too. They weren't quite sure how to adapt. They were down multiple scores. That could definitely happen on Sunday. Can the Packers get their legs under them, though, after that first quarter? Are they able to adjust and get into that rhythm that we saw at the end of the year against Minnesota and against the Bears in the final week of the year at Lambeau Field? Certainly, that is going to be a plot heading into this game. How does a young team go into the playoffs against a team that's been in the battles? They have not succeeded in the battles. But Dak has been there. CeeDee Lamb has been there. Of course, Mike McCarthy has been there. That will be something to watch as a Packer fan heading into Sunday. Another thing to look at, this will be something talked about today and tomorrow when the final injury reports are submitted. Three to watch for, in my mind, that are on the injury report for the Packers that are actually iffy to play. The injury list is a mile long again. There are about 20 names on there. But three of them, in my mind, are kind of toss-ups that you would want out there. One of them is A.J. Dillon. I know not everybody's going to be on board with that one because if A.J.'s out there, then maybe that costs Aaron Jones carries. All that kind of stuff. I do think if he's available, that's somebody you're going to want. And in short yardage situations, or if you're at the one-yard line, he was not playing poorly. It's not been his greatest season statistically. When Jones was down, he didn't seem like he was the kind of guy in that run where he could carry you and get you 20, 25 carries and 100 yards and score a touchdown, all that kind of stuff. Still a guy I think you want out there if he's healthy. Number two on that list to me is Christian Watson. Again, practicing all week like he did heading into the Bears week. Looked like he was going to play Bears week. Did not play during the Bears game. You've got so many options now at wide receiver, it might be easy to say, oh, they'll be okay without him. They've been without him a lot last year and this year. You've got Dontavian Wicks. You've got Jaden Reed. You've got the tight end combo. You've got Romeo Dobbs. Sounds like he's going to play. The growing wide receiver tight end room makes it more palatable if Watson can't go. But there's no doubt Christian Watson gives you that next level when he's healthy. And I don't know if he's going to be 100% if he plays. When he is fully healthy with that speed, with that size, his ability to get downfield, his ability to be utilized in the run game. If you throw him a lateral or you shovel one to him when he's coming in motion, he gives you a different dimension offensively. The third one is Jair Alexander. Side note, I'm going to play the clip here in a second. Did you see Jair... (laughs) (laughs) just hopping onto a local TV news report outside of Lambeau Field. It was such a funny clip. I really appreciate that Jair, after the suspension, before the Bears game, he was so contrite and said, you know what? I get it. I'm a veteran on a young team. I'm a young player, but I'm a veteran on this team. I've got to be better with communication. I've got to be a leader. I'm going to have more toned down post-game interviews like all this kind of stuff. He said all the right stuff. He sounded contrite. He gave you this sad voice, the whole thing, the whole nine yards. And then after they won, he was in the locker room with a cigar talking about how the locker room smelled like a casino. Then he was doing this on Monday, but it was so funny. There was a young reporter for Channel 2 that was outside of Lambeau Field just doing one of those, you know, Packers are in the playoffs, and if you're going to go down to Dallas, tickets are on sale, or there's a pep rally here, or whatever she was talking about. And Jair must have been just wandering around Lambeau Field 
Mayfield or leaving the office for the day. And he noticed this and he goes up to her and he kind of breaks into the live shot and says, I'm just here to tell you pack is back. And the best part of this clip is that the reporter doesn't quite know who he is, which I don't even know that I would. And I follow sports closer than anybody. If I were doing a stand-up and a random person came up to me, the number one thing I'd be concerned about with a live mic on a live shot is what is this person going to say and how big could the FCC find be? And it's so quick. It's hard to think that she would have time to know who Jair is, and maybe she isn't even a sports person. You know, sometimes these TV stations, they'll just send out a pool reporter to do something outside of Lambo. They're not necessarily a sports anchor or somebody who's even interested in sports. But she calls him a fan. <laughs> Listen to this fan over here. I love this clip so much. Bring that energy right to Texas. I'm just here to tell you, Peg is back. You heard it from a fan right here. Pack is back. You heard this fan say it. Pack is back. It was very funny. Now, Jair, not funny, during the week, I guess, in a walkthrough on Wednesday where you're not supposed to have any risk of injury as they're jogging. I guess he turned his ankle, stepping on a teammate's foot, and now he's on the injury report with that. He's still kind of battling that shoulder thing, and now you add the ankle injury to it. You want Jair on the field. Again, a lot like Christian Watson. I get that some fans are fed up with how often he is injured, and then they play so well against Minnesota without him, even though that was against a destitute quarterback. I don't even remember Jaron Hall and Nick Mullins in the second half. They did play well there. I thought Jair played pretty well against Chicago on Sunday in the win to get them into the playoffs. I get it. You might have the take of, do they even need Jair out there? They're better without Jair out there. They need Jair out there on Sunday. We are looking at a Cowboy team that is unbeaten at home that scores points hand over fist at home. We said last on Monday or last Friday, not quite on the level with the 1999 St. Louis Rams greatest show on turf, but not that far off. They're averaging 37 and a half points per game at home. They've got one of the best receivers, arguably the best receiver in the league. Who would he be behind? Tyreek Hill? And then I would think CeeDee Lamb on most people's list is number two. They have him. They have a ton of different weapons. Old Badger friend Jake Ferguson's on there, too. Not that Jair would really match up on him too much. You want Jair out there. Long story long, you want Jair out there, even with the antics or whatever, the injuries. He's still one of the best corners in the league. And against this offense and that arsenal of wide receivers at their place where they're very comfortable You want Jair out there. Those three, to me, are the biggest game-time decisions heading into Sunday. Now, Matt LaFleur said he didn't think the Jair thing was all that serious. You never know how that goes, though, especially with those kind of injuries and leading up to the game and who knows how it gets affected on the flight or whatever. Those are three to watch for, though. A.J. Dillon, Christian Watson, and Jair Alexander. This will be the ninth postseason matchup between these two teams, and that will tie them for the most postseason matchups from two teams in NFL history. The Packers actually have the record that this will tie once they play on Sunday. Do you know who the other team is? The Packers and who have the record? Nine times they've met up in the postseason. I'll give you a minute. Should we play the Jeopardy clip? I don't think we can afford that, but I'll give you a second. It is the Giants? No, it's not the Giants. The San Francisco 49ers. The Niners and the Packers have played nine times in the playoffs. Packers and Cowboys have played eight times in the playoffs. That will be number nine on Sunday. And then the last thing I wanted to hit on, we talked about this on Monday. Certainly we want the Packers to win this game. Gosh, I love the Packers. I'd do anything for the Packers. We want them to win every game they're in. We'd love for them to make a Super Bowl run. If you're going to give me a Super Bowl, if you're handing out Super Bowls, I'll take one. Sign me up for one. Put me on the list. I will take one. That said, this is house money. We can all agree on that. We're going to live and die with the game. 
And like I talked about either on the air or on the podcast, if this is a close game late and they lose a heartbreaker late, my attitude on Monday may be completely different. I'm not sure that I'm going to be Holly go lightly and doing a tiptoe through the tulips on Monday if they lose a tight game by a field goal at the end and something stupid happens. And I'm not sure I'm going to be talking about house money then. I'm not guaranteeing that. But heading into the weekend, most Packer fans, I feel like, are on the same page. We did not expect this in year one with Jordan Love in what at minimum was a transition year, at maximum was going to be a rebuilding year with the injuries they had, with the youngest roster in the league, losing your left tackle basically day one, wide receivers in and out on the injury list, teams sitting at two and five, three and six at one point. We were doing podcasts where we were talking about who they could take with the top five pick. Would they take a quarterback if they got all the way up to number three and number two? That's where we were at the end of October, early November. They totally turned this thing around. I almost said a 360. It's a 180 jump. They totally turn this thing around and get themselves in a spot where they win and they get in. Jordan Love couldn't be playing better. The offense couldn't be playing better. Matt LaFleur is calling plays like a savant right now. This is the Matt LaFleur that we thought we were getting when he came to Green Bay, that he's going to be able to scheme things up. And we did see that with Rodgers. Certainly it was tailored a bit to Rodgers' sensibilities, and Rodgers had the ability to adjust to the line of scrimmage. Now we're kind of seeing the full-on Matt LaFleur offense, and it is as advertised when they hired him. This is an offense that gets up and down the field, gets the ball out quickly, gets their position players, their speed players, wide receivers, and Aaron Jones in space, lets them operate. We're seeing that all right now. And for them to get in as the seventh seed, no matter what happens on Sunday, honest to God, it doesn't matter. We want them to win. If they win, unbelievable. If they lose by 21, fine. You get the youngest team in the league, and almost all of them are coming back next year. You get the youngest team in the league, playoff experience on the road, and that will be invaluable for them moving forward. This is the epitome of house money, unless they lose by three points in a stupid way. How do they win this game? I think the offense can keep up with the Cowboy offense right now. There is going to be that stumbling block early where maybe they have a three and out right out of the gate because the moment is pretty big. With the way this offense is rolling, though, Matt LaFleur seems so in sync with Jordan Love and vice versa. I mean, it's like hive mind out there. It feels like they are totally in sync with what play call is coming in, where he wants him to go with the ball. It always feels like there's somebody open. Aaron Jones now fully healthy for three weeks in a row, getting over 100 yards on the ground in each of those three weeks gives you a totally different dynamic offensively and a guy on a young team that actually has playoff experience that has been in these games. That will be helpful as well. For that reason, I would actually expect a pretty healthy dose of Aaron Jones early in this game, and I'm fine with that. That part of it, I'm not worried about. I think even though you've got Micah Parsons and you've got some pieces on that Cowboy defense, which has not been bad this year, and Dan Quinn, their defensive coordinator, one of the top-ranked D coordinators in the league. Even with all of that, I do think with the way this Packer offense is going, they are going to be able to score 25-ish or more points in this game. How do they win the game is simple. Barry, Joe. Can this defense against an elite offense look anything close to what we saw in Week 17 against the Vikings and Week 18 against the Bears? Now, the Bears were a better test. Their offense had actually been playing pretty well heading into that week, and the defense able to limit them to nine points, not allow them in the end zone. They only give up 10 points, and they really should have only given up three against the Vikings, although, like we talked about, you have to factor in the dumpster fire that was the quarterback situation for the Vikings heading into that game. Can Joe Barry in this defense hold a potent Cowboy offense to 24 points? Because I think you can win 27-24. Could they hold him to 24 points? Because I think you could win 30-24. to Something like, you know, one of those kind of scores. Did I just say the same score back-to-back? It's possible. Anyway, snowstorm. (laughs) Anyway, 
I think if they can keep them in that 20 to 24 and maybe even 27 range, I think that would put the Packers in a position to win. I do think the Packers are going to need a play from the defense. And that by that, I mean not just limiting them in terms of yards and drives and stuff like that. They're going to need a strip sack from Rashawn Gary or an interception from Jair Alexander or Keyshawn Nixon or somebody like that. I do think the Packers are going to need one of those things to go their way. The other thing the Packers need on Sunday is for the special teams to not be totally idiotic. Can you just be normal? I don't even need a play. I don't need a punt return for a touchdown. That would be great. I don't need a kick return for a touchdown. That would be great. All I need is for this special teams unit to not want to make me bash my brains into a brick wall by them doing something incredibly stupid in the biggest moment of the year. And by that, I mean we can't have muffed punts. We can't have a blocked field goal. We can't have a blocked punt. We cannot have Anders Carlson missing a 40-yarder. If Anders Carlson misses a 55-yarder, I can live with that. You can't miss anything 48 in, and you cannot miss any extra points. If they can field punts and field kicks cleanly and not miss kicks, it's asking a lot, I know, and not fumbling a snap or whatever, fumbling a punt, that should put this team in a position to win. Like we talked about on Monday, if you can get that offense going the way they have been and get one thing to go your way defensively and special teams are normal, my feeling is this will be a one-possession game in the fourth quarter, and that's where you want to put the Cowboys. You want to put pressure on the two-seed. You want to definitely put pressure on Mike McCarthy, who does not have the greatest concept of time and clock management at the end of a close game. We learned that during his time in Green Bay. You want to have this be a 24-21 game entering the fourth quarter, whether the Packers are up or down. You want the crowd to be nervous about what's happening. You want to maybe have a play where you get in front and all of a sudden the Cowboys think, oh my God, are we going to lose this game? That's where you want to be in the fourth quarter. And if they can do that, regardless of the outcome, you feel fine with it. If they can do that, though, I do think they have a good chance to win. If this is a if this is a one-possession game and you're down a touchdown with the ball entering the fourth quarter, to me, you're in a toss-up game then. You're in a 50-50 game. Packers are seven-and-a-half-point underdogs heading into the weekend. I want to bet on it. I probably will. I don't know if we're going to make it a part of the pick segment or not. I love that half-point hook. This is one of those games, though. We had somebody text the B93 Morning Show that said they're either going to win this game by three or lose it by 21, and I could see either outcome coming out of Sunday. But what a blessing this is. Hashtag blessed. What a blessing this is to have a Packer game on Wild Card Weekend with where this team was in the middle of the year. It's an astounding turnaround You have your franchise quarterback now, regardless of what happens on Sunday. We're feeling very good about the 2023-2024 season. Is that everything I wanted to hit on here on the Packers stuff? I think so. Hold on. I had a rundown here. Ninth pole season matchup, house money, Packers, Lions, stay calm, John. I always put that in there too. Packers, yeah, I think we're good. All right, let's move on to the NBA and the Milwaukee Bucks last night. Should we queue up some Bucks lost? Maybe not yet. Who saw that coming? I have to admit something to you. My wife and I are curlers. I don't know if we've mentioned that on the podcast or not. We are a part of the Milwaukee Curling Club, which is actually in Cedarburg. And we picked this up in 2016, and we are pretty fully in that world now. We have a curling league every Thursday night. And the Bucks game was on at 6.30. Our matchup on Thursday night was starting at 5.45 on the ice. And we were in the midst of that, and I so I missed the first half. We got off the ice. And I talked about this on the B93 Morning Show. I'm not sure how optimistic I was about this game, even though the Celtics were coming off of a back-to-back. They were at home on Wednesday taking on the best team in the Western Conference, the Minnesota Timberwolves. They beat that team, but it did go to overtime. So they played a really good team. They went to overtime. They got the win. 
That's a short turnaround, though, on a back-to-back in Milwaukee on a nationally televised game. Even with that part of it, the Bucks' vibes have been so, so bad, and Dame's body language right now with all the stuff he's going through off the floor or off the court has not been great. Giannis calling out the defense, Middleton calling out the defense, getting your doors blown off at home by a sub-500 Utah team on Monday. It just didn't feel like this was going to be a recipe for success. We get off the ice, and we get into the warming room at the curling club in Cedarburg. And I look at the score, (laughs) and I assume that the score bug has been broken. Somebody broke the score bug. Somebody fix it. Because the score read at the end of the second quarter, or near the end of it, Bucks 73, Celtics 37. And I went, what? Uh, I was like, Tim, uh, is that a good home improvement? Probably not. Shouldn't do those on the fly. Anyway, (laughs) what can you do now? It's already on there. We could edit it out, but we're not. I thought, there's no way. Is that a real score? I asked my wife, is that a real score? 73 to 37? Apparently, they ripped off 25 unanswered from the end of the first quarter into the second quarter. They had a massive halftime lead. I, being a lifelong Bucks fan, was still nervous, even though it was 80 to 40 or 90 to 50 or whatever it was. Celtics played everybody. That was my next thought. When I saw the score, I thought, oh, they must have just pulled everybody and not played Tatum, not played Brown because of the nationally televised game. They must have not played them on the second of a back-to-back. But when I saw the score, then I looked on the floor, I said, oh, Tatum's out there, Jalen Brown's out there, Derek White's out there, Drew Holiday is out there. Nice video tribute, by the way, for Drew Holiday, which should have been done and was done before the game. They had a little two-minute video tribute to Drew. He got a standing O, I guess, during the introductions, which he rightfully deserves. He should never, ever play a game in Milwaukee, regardless of what team. If he's in Boston the rest of his career, he comes back to Milwaukee with some other team. At no point should he not get a standing ovation in Milwaukee for what he did for that title team and the lob to Kumpo in Game 5 and all that stuff. They were all out there, though. The full arsenal was out there for the Celtics, and the Bucks were still putting it on them like that. I was still nervous they'd blow it somehow. That Bucks second unit or a second and a half or third unit when they get into games, we've seen it happen before where AG or even last year when Bud would put them in with three minutes left in a 25-point game. Before you knew it, it was a 10-point game with a minute and a half left, and Giannis was getting back in and Milton was getting back in. I was a little worried about that, but the deep pinch players do get it done. And the Bucks get a statement win. They desperately needed this, 135-102, to 102, to spank the Celtics the way they did. And this actually is what the Celtics did to the Bucks at the end of the year last year. Remember that game? And it was the Bucks in that situation that were coming off of a back-to-back. They had to play on Wednesday, nationally televised game in Milwaukee. I think it was in April. That was a Thursday night. And remember, the Celtics won like 144-99, to 99, and nobody was feeling good. That was right before the playoffs. The Bucs and Celtics at that time were vying for the number one overall seed. The Bucs would eventually get that, not that it mattered. That was a real sour feeling coming out of that game last April. Well, that's what the Bucs were able to do last night. And with how the month of January has gone and how up and down it's been and Lillard missing a game there with personal reasons on Monday and all the things that he's dealing with, the defense hasn't looked good. Bucks fans are wolves at the door again for Adrian Griffin now, just like they were at the beginning of the year. Just didn't feel great heading into last night, not expecting a win. And to not only get a win, but to have a resounding win and to have Celtics Twitter on their heels a bit, to win in that fashion where they look dominant. And the defense looked so good. They had at halftime, right when I was able to start watching, they had Kenny Smith go up to the big big board on TNT, and he was going through multiple Bucks defensive possessions where their rotations were so crisp and they were adjusting correctly and switching correctly and they were up on people. That's the best that Adrian Griffin defense has looked all year. 
and they get a big time 135 to 102 win. Giannis had 24, 12, and 6, one block, one steal. He only had to play 26 minutes. Lillard looked good coming off of that personal day on Monday, 21 points on 6 of 12, shooting 3 of 8 from beyond the arc. Malik Beasley is such an interesting guy to watch. I think he's been a net upgrade over Grayson Allen. Both of them are elite shooters, Beasley more so. He had 16 points, 6 of 11, shooting 4 of 8 from beyond the arc. The man is shooting 48% from beyond the arc this year, and that's with volume. It's not like he's not taking threes, like he's one of two every game. He's taking six, seven, eight threes a game. You would love for him to be able to figure it out defensively. It is his eighth year in the league, so I'm not sure how much improvement you're going to see there. He said before the year that he has to be more committed. He has to dig in defensively if he's going to be a part of the starting five, and he has been the whole year. He's trying. His lateral quickness is not great, but man, can he shoot. He is so fun to watch. Every three he shoots, I think it's going in. 50% again last night. The other big component last night was BP, Big Bobby. 28 and 12. He has been miserable the last couple of weeks after a good December for the most part. The last week or last half week of December, not good. All of January has been abysmal where he's maybe scoring six or seven points on two of 10 shooting. He was in a zone last night. 28 points, 12 rebounds, 11 of 18 shooting, 5 of 6 from beyond the arc. And he was still out there late with that second or third unit. He was the guiding force when they needed him to be. And the Bucks get that win to get to 26 and 12 overall. They do make up some ground. What are they, though? They're still pretty far back. Three games back. There's a lot of time. And as we learned last year, the one seed doesn't matter. That's another part of Bucks fans freaking out in January. I get it. It hasn't looked good. It's not encouraging recently until last night where this almost erases two weeks worth of games that were not encouraging the way they won last night. But guys, we just went through this whole year last year where you were fighting for the one seed and this is the year it matters. This is the year the one seed matters. Remember we said that all year last year. They get the one seed and they're out in five games. And then all offseason, what did we say? We're not going to worry about the one seed because clearly that doesn't matter. We know this team is going to get in. They won the championship as a three seed. As a one seed, they have not been good. They lost in 2019. They lost last year. And we said to ourselves, we're not going to freak out about February losses or January losses or late December losses. And we're not going to go crazy if the Celtics are running away with the one seed and we're a two or three seed because it's all about being healthy. It's all about this new team with a new coach coming together at the end of the year. And even though we told ourselves that, we're still freaking out when we lose to Utah on January whatever that was, on January 8th on Monday night. It's hard not to. When you're emotionally invested in a team, no matter how many times you tell yourself that the regular season stuff doesn't matter, it's hard not to get upset when they're playing really poorly over a longer stretch of time. Last night, though, erases most of that. They are still three games back. So the Celtics are 29-9. and the Bucks are 26 and 12. The Bucks are tied for the third or they are the third best record in the league. They've got a tough weekend on the way. The Golden State Warriors are in town on Saturday. They are not the Golden State Warriors that we are accustomed to seeing. It seems like they are in the twilight of that dynasty, although you never know when they can flip the switch. They will be at Pfizer Forum 7 o'clock on Saturday night. And then you've got that up-and-coming Kings team. They were a surprise team last year, a surprise playoff team last year. They pushed Golden State to seven games in the playoffs. That's a back-to-back. Golden State and Sacramento, two pretty good teams coming to Fiserv on Saturday and Sunday. And you would guess with the back-to-back, one of them is national TV. That's Saturday on NBA TV. Sunday is not. So that could be an area where you're going to see Giannis have a calf rest. 
kind of game or something like that, or maybe Dame has another personal date or whatever it is. I would not be shocked to see that with the Sunday game with Sacramento in town, 6 o'clock tip time. We'll be flipping over to that right after the Packer game wraps up at 3.30. Yeah, there'll be a little crossover there. But a pretty big weekend for the Bucks. Just uh, one of those <sighs> kind of wins where we needed that. You had to send a message to Boston with the way the Celtics had been playing against the Bucks. You wanted to get back, and they got that and then some. And you go back now and look at the two matchups this year with Boston. For as poor as the Bucks' defense has been a lot of the year, two of their better performances are against the Celtics. Remember, they lost that game back in November, 119 to 116. Like we talked about, giving up 119 points, not great, but in the modern NBA, not awful. And then you only give up 102, and all of the Celtics' key players are riding the bench beginning in the third quarter at halftime. When you go through the schedule and results, two of their better defensive performances really have come against the elite offense of Boston. Golden State Saturday, Sacramento on Sunday. What else do we want to hit on here before we get to picks? Oh, Badgers get another win on the road. Are the Badgers the best team in the Big Ten? I had somebody text the B93 Morning Show talking about that win at Ohio State on Thursday saying Greg Gard needs a lot of credit for changing the offensive scheme or tweaking it to a point where this team is actually scoring points consistently. Totally agree. And for whatever reason... Well, we talked about the Wolves being at Adrian Griffin's door. The Wolves have been at Greg Gard's door for many years, despite the fact that the man has won two Big Ten titles in the last four years. They underachieved in the tournament when they had Johnny Davis coming off of a regular season Big Ten title and having a three seed. They were out in the second round there. The tournament history has not been great, but the tournament's a crapshoot. He has got this team cooking. They are now averaging almost 78 points a game, which is second best in program history. A big part of this is going and getting A.J. Story. Yes, they have tweaked the system, but they also went out and got a guy in the transfer portal that can give you 17, 18 a night. And you've got two bigs you can lean on who have been playing better. They win at Ohio State, though, and Stephen Crow was not healthy. He was a game-time decision about an hour before it looked like he was not going to play. Then he did. Didn't play all that well, but A.J. Storr was great, and Max Klezman was fantastic in the second half. In what was a back-and-forth game, he hit some huge shots down the stretch, and Ohio State could not respond. And for the way the Badger offense has been going, it was a low total. I think it was 61 they got, or 61-52 final. To go on the road, though, and get a win against a 12-3 and Ohio State team, this is not an Ohio State team like the Greg Oden days 20 years ago. Remember that guy? There's the first Greg Oden reference in a long, long time. I'd like to think Greg Oden perked up right there for no reason. Just felt good. But it's not like it's that Buckeyes team or some of the teams they had with Thad Mata back in the day. But it's a road win. And this Badger team now is 12-3. and They are off to their best start since 2013. Yes, you heard that correctly. Not the 2014 Final Four team. Not the 2015 Final Four team. The year before that, as they were ascending, I guess. 12-3, and 4-0 in the Big Ten. They are the only unbeaten team in the Big Ten right now. They are up to 15th in the country. They do play this weekend. How early is this tip time with Northwestern? Does Northwestern still have that one guard who just torments them? What's his name? Boo Booey? Guy turns into prime Michael Jordan every time he matches up against the Badgers. It is... Is it Saturday or is it Sunday? Hold on. Hold, please. It must be Sunday. I thought they played on Saturday. It is not on Sunday. Am I just missing the game here? Pretty sure they play on Saturday. Maybe not. I know Marquette does. We're going to have to edit this out. (laughs) I don't know when they play. Hold on. I know Northwestern is next up. Oh, I think it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I think that's why. It must be on Monday. Who is right behind them in the standings right now? Number 10, Illinois, 3-1. Badgers will take on Northwestern. It is an 11 a.m. tip time. No, it is Saturday. Why isn't that on the 
ESPN schedule. All right. It's on Big Ten Network. It is early. Yeah, Boo Booey is still a player for Northwestern. You win that game, and you get to 5-0 and in conference and 13-3 and overall. When they wake up on Monday, they're going to be a fringe top 10 team, I think. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got Marquette, and the wheels are just falling off at the moment. They're going to be okay. They are a team that's going to make the tournament. I mean, I wouldn't be concerned about any of that kind of stuff. This is a team that is a long way away, though, from the team we saw in November that was the third-ranked team in the country, the fourth-ranked team in the country, the team that beat number one Kansas, then almost beat number two Purdue back-to-back at that tournament in mid-November. We are a long way from that. Got thumped at Providence, did bounce back with the wins against Georgetown and number 22 Creighton, but now back-to-back losses at Seton Hall and got smoked at home. Couldn't hit a shot against Butler on Wednesday. Tyler Kolick is one of 11. They are 11-5 and now, 2-3 and in conference. They have off until Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday. And they will play Villanova there. Villanova right now unranked, a lot like Ohio State. This is not the Villanova team of five or six years ago or four or five years ago, those winning national titles. But Marquette kind of needs a win. They're in the lower half of the Big East at the moment. Are they going to be out then on the Monday top 25? If they're not out, they'll be probably 23, 24, 25. Somewhere in the 23 to 25 range, I would guess, when the new top 25s come out on Monday. Just disappointing. I know Marquette fans, and I've said this before, I have a lot of connections, familial connections to Marquette. It was so exciting to see them in the top five preseason and then to have that back-to-back where they almost beat one and two and they would have been the number one team in the country if they could have beaten number two Purdue late in that game. They beat number 12 Texas. A lot to be excited about. A lot of those guys coming back except for Max Prosper. Maybe that was a bigger loss than we thought it was when he went late in the first round in this past June's NBA draft. It just hasn't looked good since then. The defense has not been locked in. They're not scoring points or overwhelming people offensively. Yeah, 11-5, 2-3 in the Big East. They will take on Villanova on MLK Day Monday, 1-30, and that's on national TV. That'll be on Fox on Monday afternoon. All right, real quick Brewer arbitration notes. They they got to deal with Corbin Burns, everybody. We're not going to a trial over $750,000 with Corbin Burns. He's going to make a little over $15 million. They did come to terms with Willie Adamas, too. He's going to make a little over $12 million this year. Did not come to terms with Devin Williams, and it sounds like that one is going to maybe go to an actual ARB court case where they'll exchange figures and then plead their cases and figure out what they're going to pay Devin Williams, who has been a reliever of the year now multiple times. He was a rookie of the year back in 2020. A lot going for him into that ARB case if it does, in fact, get there, and I think at this point it is. I think the deadline was 8 o'clock. But they did avoid that with Corbin this time around, and I know they had to do this. You have to pay these guys and work these contracts out, but this just, again lends credence to where I think we are right now, and that is that those two guys are going to be on the opening day roster. A lot can still happen, I think. You know, they signed Yelly or they traded for Yelly and they signed Locaine late January in 2018. We're not even to that point. We're not even mid-January yet. But this team is going to be packing their bags in five weeks, five weeks from right now to go to spring training. And if you get to Arizona and Corbin and Willie are still on this team and it's looking like they're going to be, that's how they're going to start the year. And it is looking more and more like they're not willing to go through a full rebuild. They're going to keep both of those guys and just see where they're at by the trade deadline. But they did work out some ARB deals yesterday with Corbin. And I think Hobie Milner's on that list too. Devin was the big name that they did not work out a contract with. Okay, let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to one on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. We are 51 35 and 5, or 36 and 5. 51, 36 and 5 entering play today. We went 2 and 1 in the NFL last week. 
We're going to do something a little different here. I got to be honest with you. I do not have a great feeling one way or the other on a lot of these lines. So we are going to do one bet and we are going to make it a teaser. I believe I've explained this before. I'll explain it again. In a teaser, you add six points to whatever side of the spread you want to add it to. And you have to have a minimum two teams and you can have up to seven or eight teams. And the more teams you add, the greater the payday gets. But all of them have to hit. If one of them doesn't hit, That puts the whole teaser away, a lot like a parlay. We are going to do a three-team teaser, and it is going to involve the Texans, the Lions, and the Eagles. I know that's a dicey proposition for how badly the Eagles have looked recently. What I'm going to do is turn the Texans into plus eight and a half. They are two-point underdogs right now at home, plus two, so it'll be plus eight and a half, or plus two and a half. It'll be plus eight and a half. Then we will have the Lions at home at plus three and a half. They are minus three and a half right now, or minus two and a half right now. We'll get them to plus three and a half. And then we're going to have the Eagles then at plus three and a half as well on the road in Tampa. That's And all of those have to happen for this to pay, and it pays plus 145 if it hits. Texans plus eight and a half, Lions plus three and a half, and Eagles also plus three and a half on the Monday night matchup against Tampa. When you look at these games... The Texans and Browns game, 3.30 NBC on Saturday. One of the ugliest jersey matchups you're going to get in a playoff game. Those are two hideous jerseys. The Texans are two-point dogs. If you force me to pick somebody here, I think I'd take the Texans at plus two. But the Browns' defense is so good. You've got a really young Texans team. Still with a rookie quarterback, even though Stroud has played well. It's tough for me to get an angle on that one. I know I said on Monday, the night matchup on Saturday, Dolphins at Chiefs, the Peacock app exclusive. Do you have access to Peacock? Do you have access to somebody that has access to Peacock? Shout out, Paul. Do you have a website you can go to where you can stream this for free? I still don't understand what the NFL is trying to accomplish by doing this. I know they want to get Peacock subscriptions up. I just don't see how this will be more profitable than if you just put this game, and it's the reigning Super Bowl champs. You have the reigning Super Bowl champions in a playoff game at home with Taylor Swift in the crowd, and you're going to have it on a app you have to pay a subscription for? You can't tell me they wouldn't make more money just putting this on NBC, national TV, 7 o'clock kickoff, Saturday night, wildcard weekend, The advertising money they would get from that broadcast and the numbers they would get in the ratings, that doesn't supersede what you would get in $6 Peacock subscriptions. I don't get the economics of it. Anyway, my initial thought was if the Dolphins can get Jalen Waddell back, and it looks like they're going to, and you've got two and Tyreek Hill, and still you've got a good offense, even though the end of the year didn't go well for them. And they have some injuries, a ton of injuries defensively. The Chiefs offense has not looked like the Chiefs offense of years past. We've talked about that all year. You've got this young Dolphins team that does have a lot of weapons. I felt on Monday like the Dolphins could cover the four, and they could even win this outright. I did not factor in that I guess Kansas City is going to be in single digits By the time they get to kickoff on Saturday, they're talking like seven degrees by the time they get to kickoff. And you're now having a Miami team from South Beach go into the reigning Super Bowl champions home, my home lane. And it's going to be six or seven degrees for a team from South Beach. I no longer have faith in that pick. I still think it could happen of all of the teams. And I don't want to do this to my Packers, but of all of the underdogs, the deep underdogs that could win outright, I do still think the Dolphins are the one, but I don't like a Miami team playing in those kind of cold temperatures. 
So I'm staying away from that. That's why I didn't involve them in anything. The Chiefs are four-point favorites. I think the Bills will win outright, but there's no value there. They are 10-point favorites. Mason Rudolph has given that Steeler offense a spark. Bills, though, the way they finished the year, they're able to steal the AFC's championship, get themselves a home playoff game. I think they're going to make their way all the way to the AFC title game at minimum with the way they're playing right now. I don't know if they're going to win that game by 10, though. Tomlin is so good in the playoffs. That Steeler defense, even with the T.J. Watt injury, still plays. We know Josh Allen is turnover-prone. I don't love them minus 10. I think they'll win. I just would be hesitant about minus 10 going into that game, and there's no value on the money line bet there for the Bills. I do want to take – I'll probably take the Packers plus 7.5. Why not? I'm not going to throw in the official picks, but I probably will take them there. Rams-Lions should be fun. You get Stafford back in Detroit. I don't mind the thought of taking Detroit minus three. You win by a field goal. I do think they'll win. We do have some friends in the curling club that are huge Lions fans. And talking to them last night as we were watching the end of the Bucks game, I said, well, what's the, what's the nerves level for this game? You finally have a division title team. You finally won the NFC North. It's a home playoff game for the first time since I think Favre beat them. I think it's the first home playoff game maybe since the Favre beat them at the Silverdome, the clip we played earlier. I'm almost certain that's true. Maybe. Kind of. And now in, in that situation, and now you've got the former quarterback, Stafford, coming in there with a different team that he just won a Super Bowl with two years ago. I mean, they are nervous. They're definitely nervous. I would think about the Lions at minus three. And then I think the Eagles are going to beat Tampa. The Eagles have been such a mess, and the locker room seems so divided, and Sirianni is a coach that feels unhinged with how poorly they've played lately. We've seen that narrative going in, though, to a a playoff matchup where a team that was a Super Bowl favorite in the middle of the year, they fall apart toward the end of the year, and nobody's picking them to win, and then they go out and win that wild card game by two touchdowns. The Packers did that in Washington a few years ago. Remember that year? Was it 2015 where they had all the injuries to the wide receivers, and they looked uneven all year, and they couldn't score, and nobody was picking them to beat Washington in Washington. They went in there and won by 15 points, I think it was, before they were out in the second round in Arizona. I get that kind of feeling with Eagles. People are so down on the Eagles that they'll probably go out and win that game. That's why I like taking them in that teaser plus three and a half. But that's the only pick we're going to make. All three have to happen. Texans plus eight and a half. What else was there? (laughs) What else was plus three or plus? Yeah, Lions plus three and a half and Eagles plus three and a half. That's the three-team teaser for the weekend. All right, that'll do it for us here today. Hopefully, we are coming back with a Victory Monday Packer Playoff Edition Monday. You will not be able to contain my Ric Flair woos into this microphone if they win this game and they're on to San Francisco and we're previewing a divisional round game with the youngest team in the league. Let's hope so. We'll break it down either way. We'll talk about the two Bucks games over the weekend, a couple of college basketball games, or one for the Badgers over the weekend. We'll set up the Marquette game on Monday. Any other Brewers news will spike in there too. Have a happy, safe weekend. Stay safe with the snow. We'll chat with you Monday. <laughs>